Welcome to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast, where we get to bring you sermons and content to help bring you closer to Jesus, develop your faith, and keep you up to date with everything young adults. Join us Sunday nights in the SCG Church Warehouse for our young adult service or at our main campus services on Saturday nights or Sunday mornings. We hope you enjoy. We are in Romans chapter 5 today, and uh, I... uh... I have seven pages and I'm only doing two verses. Romans chapters one, Romans chapters five, verses one through two. I was supposed to do 11 today. We'd be here till Jesus came back. So we're doing two verses today and I'm gonna get you guys uh, into your groups, hopefully a little earlier than I normally do because uh, I normally have more than uh, just those, uh, those, those two verses and seven pages. All right, so here's the question that's gonna kind of set us up for where we're headed today. All right, um, the question's this. I think I have a slide for it. Define happiness and what makes you happy. All right, what makes you smile? What is it, right? What, what causes joy to enter into your heart, right? So define happiness, what makes you happy. All right, turn to a neighbor, someone around you. Ready, set, Go. All right, all right, bring it up, bring it up. Define happiness for me. Or what makes you happy? What makes you happy? Food. I hear that, dude. I hear that. Anyone else? Helping others. Your job? Your dog, your dog. What's up? Camping. Heck yeah. Anyone else? Your truck. Your truck makes me happy too. Uh, Anyone else? Your nephew. How would you define happiness? What would you say? Flowers, um, butterflies. So how would you define happiness? If that's the stuff that makes you happy, how would you define happiness? Ryder. Having it for eternity. All right. Temporary. Ooh, deep. You're going to preach tonight. Uh, anyone else? Fulfillment. All right. Define happiness. It's kind of funny, right? It's this thing that we chase for. But when you kind of come down to like, how do I define it? It's kind of perplexing. Yeah. Okay, so it's an optimistic perspective on life and people. Anyone else? Yeah. You think about it, right? I've been doing some, uh, I'll start it this way. So I've been doing some research on Gen Z. And if you're between the ages of 14 and 24, guess what? You're in Gen Z. I'm a millennial. I'm old. And I got arthritis. So uh, 14 to 24, if you're in that age bracket, which most of you guys are, um, you guys are going to be, hopefully not 14, but if you're in between that age bracket, you're a Gen Z, right? So I've been doing research on Gen Z to ask like who, who, they are, who they are, who you guys are, right? What are the questions you guys are asking? What's the worldview that you use to interpret the world around you, right? Um, and how do you relate to God in proximity to God, right? And so I've come to find out that uh, what's interesting about Gen Z is that you guys care most about, want to pursue most is happiness. That's what all the research, I did eight hours reading about Gen Z to come up with that truth, right? They define happiness, or Gen Z defines happiness as occupational success and economic success. Occupational and uh, economic success. So think about it, right? If you are within that age bracket, you would say you're Gen Z. How much of your life is thinking about materialistic things and thinking about climbing a corporate ladder or getting a lot of money? Probably a lot of it. A lot of your downtime is fantasizing about the life that you don't have now, but that you wish you could have in some sense of the way if your cryptocurrencies take off, like sheep, which mine didn't. It went the opposite. I was bummed. But anyway, now we live in a society that's really kind of like, let's say, centered around this idea of happiness. In fact, we live in something called the American Experiment. Way back in 1776, the Declaration of Independence, it said this, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with uncertain, unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? So how are you guys doing? Are you guys happy? Here's the question. 
<laughs> Thank you for your answer. No, no, no one's bringing you flowers. Um, how, that was like, a, I realized it sounded like a jerk, and that's not what I meant. Um, how is the society are we doing at pursuing, acquiring, getting happiness? That's, a, that's an interesting question, right? If you would think if there's any society in human history that was good at getting its citizens, at generating, producing, acquiring, and maintaining a state of happiness, it would be the one that said the reason for this country is the pursuit of what? Happiness. But did you know that the number one category, the number one category for prescription medication is antidepressants in America? Did you know that there are more Americans on psychoactive medications than any other country on the planet? Did you know that the number one medical disorder in America is anxiety? In fact, studies over the last few years show that just there's been a 55% increase in teen suicide since COVID. Over the year 2020 alone, 1.2 million Americans attempted suicide on their life just in that one year alone. So for the last few years, I think hopelessness has kind of permeated our society. It's affected even the church. Recent polls said 33% of pastors since the time of COVID are looking at quitting. 33% of pastors. 20% of churches are projected to have closed or have closed since the COVID quarantine lockdowns. 55% of evangelicals, church-going people, didn't come back to church. And church in America now is smaller than it's ever been before in American history, with Gen Z now being the first post-Christian generation in American history, with only 4% of Gen Z. By the way, Gen Z, they're the largest um, uh, uh, population um, in human history. It's not the baby boomers, it's you guys. Gen Z is the largest generation, at least in American history. And only 4% of them have a biblical worldview. 4% have a biblical worldview. 51% of Gen Zers, so an overwhelming majority of people in your age bracket, said life is about happiness, which is the largest generation ever in American history. While simultaneously, they said life is about happiness, they are the most anxious, depressed, and joyless generation in American history. I wonder, assess a question, I wonder if they're interconnected, that they have no hope, they experience no hope because they don't have a God of hope. Could it be that those are interconnected? in some sense of the way. And so today we're jumping into Romans chapters one, or chapters five, verses one through two. I'm sorry. And uh, we're only in two verses today. My hope is to get you guys more time in your guys' groups to kind of discuss this. Today I remind you, I'm just kind of doing like an exegetical teaching. What do the words mean? Things like that. Give you guys some thoughts to maybe make some application in your guys' group. So if you have a Bible, go with me. Romans chapters uh, five, verses one uh, to two. If not, by the way, we'd love to give you a Bible or uh, you can follow up on the screens. But Here's what we're trying to uncover today, that we worship a God of hope. And we're going to see that Paul uses this word, uh, not hope, but the word that we're going to see over the next handful of weeks, the word is rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. He says it three times over the next two weeks, we're going to hear it. The little word rejoice is the key to this whole chapter five and unlocks the idea of what Paul is trying to talk about here. And so just in the very first two verses that we're going to be going over today, Paul says that there are three results that we should have when we really believe in Jesus Christ. Um, for our, and the word we've been discovering over the last nine weeks, because we're in week 10 today, the word justification. Can somebody tell me what the word justification means? Crickets. To be declared right. That's a legal term, right? So if a judge declares someone right, it means that that person is now justified. That's what the word justification means, to be declared right. And so as a Christian, if you truly understand your theology, that at once you were at war with your creator, doomed for hell forever, but the whole story of the gospel, we learned about the gospel, the word euangelion, the idea of good news, that you deserve heaven, but you can get hell because there was one that got hell for you, Jesus, at least on the cross. If you truly digested that truth, it would allow you to live in freedom, it would allow you to, uh, to rejoice in the idea that you are saved from hell. And so what this means is that rejoicing always comes from a change of perspective. Rejoicing always comes from a change of perspective. We stop looking out there and we start looking from a heavenly perspective. Start, stop looking out there and start looking up there to see how God 
interacts with us, sees us. That's what we talked about last week. So that in the back of your minds, go with me to Romans chapters five, verses one. It says this, therefore, super important, highlight, underline. Whenever you see the word therefore in Pauline literature, in Paul's writings, whether it be 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Galatians, whatever it is, the word therefore means in light of everything I've just said, in light of everything I've just communicated, and we've done nine hours so far through the book of Romans, we're only in chapter five, so we've talked about a lot in light of all that Paul has just said. By the way, if you're new, welcome. My name is Matt. I don't think I introduced myself. Um, I'm gonna talk about a lot today. I'm gonna try my best to bring you guys up to speed. Um, we have a podcast. You can go on it, Seacoast, or, uh, Seacoast Grace Young Adults on Android or Apple or whatever, and follow with what we're doing. All right, so um, therefore, in light of everything that he's been talking about, it says this, we have been justified by faith. There's that word again. Justification is a one-time legal declaration with a continual result. Let me give you an example of this. It immediately changes your relationship with God, your status. You guys like, you never had MySpaces, but like you could like, do they do this on Facebook where you would change your status? Did they do that on Facebook? Okay, so yeah, same thing, right? Where there's like this, this public pronouncement, this change in, in single to married or confused or whatever it was, right? There's this public declaration. That's what the word justified means. It means that there's a public declaration that your status with God has now changed. I'll give you an example of this, right? So on the day that I got married, I've been married for, uh, this, year, this will be seven years. And so on the day that we got married, November um, of 2015, my wife and I were standing at the altar, the, the stage, and her dad was actually the one that, he's the senior pastor of our church. He's the one that married us. And when he made the pronouncements, when he said, I now declare, you husband and wife, that pronouncement immediately, instantly changes my status with Chelsea, relationally, legally, and now spiritually, till death do we part. And so the government now sees this as one declared family unit bound to each other forever. That's what the word justification means. It means by faith in Christ, you are bound to him and you are one family declared unit, legally, relationally, and spiritually as you're tethered to him. And what this means is that you are declared right with him and therefore he treats you in accordance with being right with him. That's foundationally different. I'm gonna talk about that in a second. Follow with me. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have highlight peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Tons to talk about here, but two important words you need to understand. The word peace and the word Lord. The word peace and the word Lord. Let me ask you a question. On a scale of one to 10, just internalize this. Are you at peace? 10 is like you've, been at more, you're more, like you've never been more at peace. One is Man, you have nightmares that wake you up at night. You're constantly anxious about insert whatever it may be, that there's something inside you that's just not okay. One to 10. How much, how much of your thought life is spent on worry and anxiety? One through 10. Thinking about the uncertainty of this future. Well, I've talked about this. You don't need to have hope and a sense of certainty. You don't need to know the future. You just need to have a relationship with the one who knows the future. God's omniscient. He knows all things, Right? Right, so are you at peace? Do you have peace? Do you know where to look for peace? Do you know where it comes from? See, real peace is something interesting. It's only a byproduct of something. It's not something that you can aim at. The world promises if you aim at this, you'll get, you'll get peace. But that's not true. Real peace is a byproduct of being at peace with your creator. Real peace is a byproduct of being at peace with your creator. I've said this in the weeks past. How could you ever feel okay if you aren't okay with your creator? If there's something inside you, your soul that still is waging war and sin against its creator. And so if you're waiting right, for the world to be at peace or for your life situations to dial down and be more peaceful, you're never going to have real peace. Why? Because real peace only comes from the Prince of Peace and it can only be dispensed into your life and my life if you have a relationship with him. So here's the truth, right? We've learned in Romans chapter three specifically 
For the wages of sin are death, right? There, there, there's no, not none one that is good, right? There's this thing called sin that's affected all of us. It's separated us from God for eternity if something doesn't change, if we don't have a new nature. We talked about that in weeks, uh, in weeks past and we'll continue to talk about. But the truth is that God has declared himself to be at war with human beings because of man's sinful rebellion against him. That's what sin is. It's a, it's a rebellion against God. And so the good news that Paul has been teaching us every single week is that if you're in Jesus, your war with God is ended forever, that it's completely gone and that you can be declared right with him. And scripture refers to the end of this conflict is that you have been reconciled to God forever. And so if you're paying attention, you're asking a good question. Well, then how do I receive this, this type of peace? This is why the second word Lord comes in and it's super important. Because when we sin, we declare war with God. When we surrender, we get peace with God. It's simple. When we sin, we declare war with God. When we surrender, we get peace with God or from God. So let me ask you a question. If you're in this room today and you lack peace, is it because you're holding on to something that you shouldn't be? Let me ask it this way. What if you are a believer in Jesus? And I know not everyone here is, but I'm glad you're here. If you are a believer, what do you need to surrender to Jesus? What sin, what fears, what future, what desires do you need to surrender to Jesus as Lord? That's what the word Lord means. It means master over your life. Listen to the way people pray often. They use words like father and God. They're kind of like, the word God for sure is kind of like semi-distant. The word father, a little bit more like close. But the word Lord and master, those are like kind of confrontational. Like I don't really, my dad isn't alive anymore, but I didn't really submit that much to him, especially when I was an adult. But to call somebody my Lord or my master, like it's a constant positioning of surrenderance. All that I am for all that you are and all that you want. That's what the word Lord actually means. It's a position of his will, not yours. And so, what sin, what fears, what future, what desires do you need to surrender to Jesus as Lord? Sometimes. Sometimes we lack peace because we lack trust, and we aren't submitting something in our lives that we're supposed to. So what pops in your mind? What's something that you need to be surrendering to God that you're not, and it's causing you to stay up at night? It's causing you anxiety. You are shouldering the weight of something you shouldn't be. And so if you, will, if you develop the courage to surrender and say, God, my life for your life. God, I give you all that I am for all that you are. I give you my money. I give you my future. I give you my desires. I give you my life. Do with it as you please. You're going to find that it's in the act of surrenderance that you can only receive peace. It's actually through the opening of your hands and giving over to God that he replaces whatever is in your hand with peace. I'm going to talk about that in a second, but follow with me in the book of Philippians. Paul also wrote this. He says this. I think I says this. Yeah. And the peace of God, who does the peace come from? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Look at this verse closely really quick. Peace doesn't come from the world. It comes from God and it sustains us in the world. It does not come from the world. It comes from his word. And that peace sustains us in the world. Two things really quick that, I want, that are true immediately when you're at peace with God. Number one, you lose your fear of God. Like holy. Let me make this make sense. So uh, growing up, probably because I was like a kid that was doing a bunch of things I shouldn't be doing, I constantly had this view that God was like a cosmic cop, just waiting, me, waiting for me to mess up so he could like tase me. You know, like that was the view I had. Or like when I was a kid, I found a magnifying glass in my house one day and uh, I, me and my, I was like that kid in Toy Story that's like blowing up all the toys. That was me as a kid, just a, just a angry little kid. And so I would run around my backyard and I would find little ants or bugs or whatever it is and like angle the sun with the magnifying glass and just start just scorching, you know, just like just killing these little like bugs or insects, whatever it is, like like that's, And that's how I thought God was growing up, that he was just kind of waiting just like from heaven, peering from the clouds, waiting for me to mess up. I'm like, ha ha. And like, so he could just like mess with my life or whatever it was. That I was in, that whenever I did something, I, I knew that God was going to punish me. 
If I watched something, said something, did something, I operated with God like I was constantly in violation of his law, and therefore all I was deserving of wrath and punishment and consequence. I'm gonna talk about the change that happens when you actually place your, your, uh, uh, your life in Christ's hands, but that's the way that I, I operated. I thought that God more operated like a judge than a father. But here's the foundational change that happens when you accept Jesus Christ, that the primary role of God in your life is father, not judge. That is drastically different. So much of scripture talks about God being a judge, and he is. But primarily, if you're found in Christ, he's your father before he ever becomes your judge. That's a radical, a foundational change in our status for God himself. The way that God sees you now is the way that I see my daughter. There's nothing about my daughter that empirically makes sense for me to be emphatically in love with her. She's not making me breakfast. She's not doing anything. She doesn't take care of herself. I gotta clean up her diapers and all that. She just poops and cries and throws it. That's all she's doing, right? But something about her, I'm just, I just love her. Like, and I would give my life for her, right? When you are found in Christ, give your life over to Christ. He sees you and I like I see my daughter, that he is now loving and tenderhearted and compassionate father that's patient with you. And the primary way that he interacts with you now, it's important you hear this, the primary way that God interacts with you now, even when you mess up, is now love, not wrath and judgment. Even when you mess up. But that's not at all. When you watch something you shouldn't do, when you do something with your boyfriend and girlfriend, when you go out drinking, whatever it is, you have this thing of shame over your, shame has its it's importance in the idea of moving you towards what God wants for you, but it's not something that's supposed to, that was supposed to be nailed on the cross, just like where your sin is. But the way that most likely you operate when you do something you shouldn't do is that you think God is like, a, like now emphatically upset and angry at you, that he almost hates you until you turn back to him. That's not the relationship of a father, at least a loving father, to their children. I think of a story that I find in, uh, in Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son. A handful of weeks ago, I spoke on our main campus on that story. And I love this story. All parables that Jesus told, parables are fictitious stories designed uh, by Jesus to teach a truth, right? Another way to say it is they're earthly stories designed to communicate a heavenly truth. And so they unlock or they teach us or illustrate us something about God the Father himself, what he's like, what his personality is like. Jesus in Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son, fictitiously immediately creates this fake narrative and story of this guy, these two sons, there's a father, and the story is actually about the father, not the son, the prodigal son or the older son, the younger or the older one. The prodigal son is the wayward son. He's the one that comes to his father and says, Father, I wish you would die and act as if you were dead and I could just get my inheritance now. I don't love you, I don't care about you, even though you've been a good father, even though you've provided for me and I have food and clothes on my back and all that, I don't care, I wish you would die. And so it says the father divided up his property, but the word for property is the Greek word bios, which means life. He divided up his entire life to give to the son what would have been his if he actually died. It says immediately that the son, you get the image that he goes over to the father and the father's giving him a, a large sum of money. And almost in an arrogant, disrespectful attitude, he grabs it, from the father, not even looking that the father is probably full of, 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 of pain, that he's crying as he's giving his son what would be his if he passed away. He goes and it says he squanders his life and it squanders his property in wild living. And so he goes to Las Vegas or he goes wherever it is and he starts spending, living a life that far exceeds what he could. And eventually it says that he gets so poor and it gets so destitute and he's living in such depravity that now he is... Asking, and this is a Jewish person, asking to feed pigs, which I don't know you know, they're not allowed to have bacon. Big no-no, all right? And so you can imagine as one day he's, you know, he's got a Home Depot bucket or whatever it is, and he's filling up the, the, maybe the, the, the feeding trough or the a place where the pigs are getting water, and he sees a glimpse of himself in the water. And it's almost like this, glint, like this moment, this glimpse of the depravity that he sees himself. He's oil in his beard. He doesn't he look nothing like he was when he was with the father. And it's like this glimpse of depravity reminds him of the decency of his father. 
And so he says, even my father has, is good to the people that he pays. Maybe I can go back and he can hire me like one of his servants. And so he starts the long trek home. And all he's thinking about, and it says that he starts conjuring up that story. And you've done that too, right? You've messed up, you've done something you shouldn't, and you start creating this fantasy, this narrative in your mind of how you're going to prove that you're sorry and say this. And as he's kind of replaying what he's going to say to his dad over and over and over and over, the picture that Jesus creates is that the father, and who's the father in the story? The father, it's a fictitious story. God is the father in the story. That even though he has disgraced his father and he has been evil and angry and not good and not honored his father, all while the father, the picture is him on his house, on his balcony, just peeking off, waiting for his son, looking and scouring the skyline for his boy to come home. Finally, he sees his boy maybe miles away in the skyline over the farmland, and the Bible says that he runs. Now, ancient men didn't run. They used to wear like dresses, weirdly enough. And so like to hike up your dress and run, not, not going to happen. And so it was showing that God the Father is willing to embrace and take on shame to recycle it and take it from you. And so he runs all the way out to the field to grab. And before the boy can say anything, dad, I am, he grabs his son, picks him up, runs him back to his house before the boy can say anything, before the son can say anything. I don't need to hear excuses. I don't want to hear excuses. I'm just excited that you are home and that you allowed me to pick you back up and bring you back into my family. I don't need to know why you did it. I don't need to know what you did. I'm just excited that you are back. The primary way that God interacts with you now is one of love. Even when you do something you know you're not supposed to do, it's no longer wrath. It's no longer judgment. The primary way is like a father in love. That's not a permission for us to do whatever we want. We'll talk about that in weeks to come. So number one, you lose your fear of God. Number two, you lose your fear of death. First Corinthians 15 says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Think about it this way. If you are in Christ, death has lost its power because it's no longer the enemy. All death is is the immediate entrance into the presence of God. That's all it is. That really, that, all death is is that you now are just in the presence of God forever. Just for a moment, I want you to think about our society's obsession about prolonging like death and aging, for example. Think of how many like anti-serms they have to like fight gravity <laughs> or like these plastic you know, surgeons that like make you look like a plastic bag, <laughs> Botox, whatever. All of it is to fight decay. All of it is to stop aging in some sense of the way. But we're also obsessed with trying to prolong death. Really, when you think about it, all basic fears behind all of them is the fear of death. It's the reason people are afraid of heights, they're afraid of flying, they're afraid of spiders, whatever it may be, is they're afraid of death. And each one of us lives with the weight that the reality that someday our life is going to end. That's the truth of every single one of us in this room. And so I guess the question is, how do you manage that reality? That one day your heart will stop. There are two lies that the enemy of your soul wants you to believe. And yes, you have an enemy of your soul. Number one, good people go to heaven, you're good, so don't worry about it. You're not as bad as Hitler, whatever it is. Man, I've talked about this. You do not get to heaven by being a good person. What does Romans say? No, not one is good. You're not good. Not one person's born right with God. And heaven and hell, they're gradients. I mean, they're not gradients, they're categories. You don't make your way into one by being a good person. You either are or not. You're either saved or not saved. You're either a sinner or you're a saint. They're categories. They're not gradients. You don't make your way into one all of a sudden one day. It's an instant change by faith in Jesus Christ where it says that his righteousness, his right standing was, we learned a word imputed, given to, transferred to you because of your faith in Jesus Christ. So the lie is good people go to heaven. You don't need to worry about it because you're a good person. Number two is people say, well, I don't believe in hell. In the most loving way, I want to say, dear friend, you will. You will. Look, some of you have no sense of urgency to think about this type of stuff because, frankly, your life is going quite well. 
You have a good life, and so thinking about your life coming to an end isn't on your radar. You think you have more time to get right with God. You think you have more time to think through life's largest existential questions or metaphysical questions. But it's silly for you to think that because your life could be taking you from a moment, and you into the day you die will make plans for days that you don't have. There's a 100% certainty. The truth is that we all have an appointed day of our death. Each one of us is going to die someday, and there's a 100% certainty that you and I will have a funeral, that people will mourn over our death. And the truth is you have no idea when that is, what that is, how that'll be. You have no idea when that day will be, but what we do know is that you will die, and what we do know is that you will stand before God either under his wrath or his grace. And what makes the gospel such good news? If you remember from week one, I told you what the word gospel meant. It meant euangelion. It means a bringer of good news. If I told you week one what a herald was, a herald was that someone proclaimed and came before where the king was going to come and give good announcements, going to bring a euangelion, good news. Uh, I'm going to bring down taxes. Gas is no longer going to be $78, whatever it is, right? So that's, that's a pronouncement from the president, from a king, right? The herald would go before, and they would pronounce that the king is coming, and there's good news. And then the king and come would give that good news. What is the good news in Scripture? It's that you can be made right with God, declared right, accepted by God as a loving father, and therefore death loses its sting and death loses its power. Follow with me in the next verse. It says this. Through him we have obtained access by faith, this is our last one for today, into this grace which we now stand. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I want to just quickly, before I dismiss you guys into groups, unpack four key words here that may help you in your guys' discussion. The first is access, grace, stand, and hope. Access, grace, stand, and hope. The first is access. What was unthinkable to the Jews is now accessible to all, which was access to God. And it means, the word access here means to be allowed in the presence of a king. Let me create a juxtaposition here. On the weekend, I'm taking our high school students through all 10 chapters of the book of Esther. Verse by verse, we're studying the book of Esther. Now, uh, there's this interesting juxtaposition between King Xerxes and the real King Jesus. Now, no earthly Jesus is not walk and talk around the time. This is a 3,000-year-old story, 1,000 years before the birth of Christ. But this guy named King Xerxes, he was the, 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 the king of the most powerful and mighty government and economy of the world at that time, the Persian Empire. The Persian is modern-day Iran, by the way. And so this story takes place 1,000 years before the birth of Christ, and we have King Xerxes. He created this throne room that was really interesting. He was high up. He was sitting on a gold throne that was 20 feet up in the air, and he built this palace, this throne room, in such a way that no matter where you see him, you can see him, you can, or wherever you are in the throne room, you can see him, and you're supposed to bow in his presence. He had this mighty gold scepter that he would hold in his hand. And if you were ushered into the king's presence for whatever reason, and he did not tip the golden scepter in your way, there would be executioners that would come out of the dark, dressed in all black. This is, this is true. They would take a bag, put it over your head, and then take you into a room and torture you and kill you. You were, if you were not given access to the king, but you came to the king, and you did not tip it in your favor, you'd be tortured, killed, beheaded, filleted, whatever it was. And then in the juxtaposition, you have a real king of kings, who is greater, God is not bigger than you think, he's bigger than you can think. He begins where your imagination comes to an end. If that God allows you access to him, what could we learn about the character of who he is and how much he deeply loves you? King Xerxes is an evil, evil man. If you were ushered into his presence, and he didn't want you to be in his presence, he would kill you. Look how different Jesus is. I love the way Tim Keller says this. He says, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access to the king of kings. See, the word for access here in Scripture is only used two times elsewhere in Scripture, and it refers always to the temple. 
Now, there are two temples specifically that Paul's audience would have immediately thought of when Paul talked about and he used the word access here. The first is something called the tabernacle. In the book of Exodus chapter 36, Moses is ordered by God to create a place called the tabernacle so God could dwell with his people. Now, if you know your theology, you know the book of John chapter 1 verse 14. It says this, um, that the word became, or the word became flesh, talking about Jesus, God and Abad, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, dwelt among us. The word tabernacle was a place for, that means God can dwell with, God can be present with. And so Moses was ordered by God to create a series of three tents called the tabernacle so God could be with his people. The first tent was a far outside tent, and it was for common Jewish people to come and offer a sacrifice. Then the inner tent was for pastors or priests of the tribe of Levi or Aaron to come in and offer sacrifices. And then on one day of the year called the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, you may see it on your Google calendar, your Apple calendar, it's called the Day of Atonement. And it was where the high priest on one day of a year doing two weeks worth of certain rituals to cleanse themselves could come in and dwell with God. The second temple wasn't the tabernacle, it was called the temple. Now the temple was just like a tabernacle, but it was a permanent one and it was erected in uh, 966 BC, so about a thousand years before the birth of Christ. Now, if you've ever seen uh, The Passion of the Christ or you've read the, the, uh, the Chronicle, the story in Scripture of the day that Jesus was crucified, there was an earthquake right after his, uh, right after his last breath when he said, um, uh, let it be finished. Um, there was an earthquake. And the earthquake in the movie, it, it showed it really well, um, tore the temple in half. And the inner part of the temple known as the Holy of Holies, where God physically was supposed to dwell, was, told, was torn in half. The movie showed it where the curtain in Jerusalem was torn from the top to the bottom. And what this meant was now that the Holy of Holies was exposed to all people, that God's presence was now access to all people. Now, look, I think the Catholic Church got this wrong because it didn't exist at this time yet. But they think that you have to go to a pastor or a priest to get access to God. Look, just because I went to Bible school and I get to do this as a job, I am no closer to God than any of you are. And that's the incredible news, that just because of a hierarchy within a church or whatever it is, that you have equal access to God, your creator, and you can come to him at any time. That God, the creator, has now turned his ear towards you if you're found in Christ. That's incredible news. The next word I want you to know is the word grace. We don't have too much time to talk about it today, but I'm, I'm thinking about make, making a sermon on it in the next few weeks. Here's an acronym of grace that I like. God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. Here's what one commentator said. Uh, Grace is God's undeserved favor towards us. It's not only the way salvation comes to us. It's also the description of our present standing before God. It's not only the beginning principle of Christian life. It's the continuing principle of the Christian life. What does that mean? Here's what it means for you. His present attitude towards you isn't just that he loves you. It means that he likes you, that God actually enjoys you. The next one is we stand in grace. And it implies a solid footing um, and a belonging by a right. In other words, if you have genuinely given your life over to Jesus, you can be assured 100% of your salvation. That Look, you, you're not going to be perfect. That's for certain, like 100% true. I'm definitely not perfect. But as you continue to offer yourself to God, he will continue to renew you. Let me make sense of this. In a handful of weeks, probably like four months, we're going to get to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And it says this, therefore, in light of everything I just talked about, it says, Dear brothers and sisters, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, holy and pleasing to him. That says, in view of God's mercies, offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God. And then it talks about this being your spiritual act of worship. Living sacrifice, that's a fascinating word in scripture because the Jews had to kill a sacrifice. What does the word living sacrifice mean? Why a living sacrifice? Because a dead one has to stay on the altar. A living one can get off the altar. An altar is a place of surrenderance before God. To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, it means to be in a constant state of surrendering to God. That's what it means to have his lordship over your life. That's what it's being talked about there. The next word is the word hope. 
When you think about the English word hope, it often conveys like a a series of doubt. For instance, like, uh, I hope it won't rain tomorrow. In addition, people often put the word so, like if you ask someone if they're going to heaven, I hope so. Does that like sound really assuring? Well, I hope so. Do you think she likes you? I hope so. Do you think she's glad she married you? I hope so. (laughs) Doubt permeates that, that idea. But biblical hope is so different from this because it's a reality, it's not a feeling. Biblical hope carries no doubt. It's a sure foundation upon which we build our lives on the promises of God, and God always keeps his promises. And here's what this means. Biblical hope is not merely your desire for something good to happen. It's a confident expectation that God has something good for you. It means this, that the God who made it all hasn't left it all, and he has good things in store for you. Look, this is not a prosperity message. I hate prosperity teachers, because the truth is, if like, that's a whole other message. But the truth is, God is a good father, and he has good things for you. In the book of James, it talks about God being the, the giver of all good gifts that come down from the Father of heavenly lights. So it means that he has good things for you, like a good father has good things for his children. A few days ago, I was driving by, there's like a little church right over here, um, but it's like Bank of America and I Choose Fitness. It's a little, like, little white church. And they always have the funniest signs sometimes. Um, they had a sign that said, hope is real. Hope is real. As I pondered the simple phrase for a little longer, I realized that for many people, hope is not a real concept. Like, hope is not real in their lives at this moment. And for many people, and maybe for you here at this moment right now, you feel helpless. You feel hopeless as you think about the uncertainties of your future. You've been spinning your wheels trying to uh, gain some traction and some control of what your future looks like. And the truth is, like, this happened over COVID for many people. This is why the, the teen suicide rate skyrocketed. You started to lose hope. And this is because hope isn't created by something you do. It's something that you receive. Hope isn't created by something that you do. It's something that you receive, like grace. It works like this. The biblical idea of hope is that faith is what we give to God, and hope is what he gives to us. Faith is what we give to God, a trust in who he is, a surrenderance, and hope is what he gives to us. And so as we wrap up today, and I get you into groups, I want want to remind us of what the essence of faith truly is. Here's why. It is one thing to believe in God, another thing entirely to believe God. It is one thing to believe in God, an entirely different thing to believe God for what he says he'll do in your life. And this is because the essence of faith is trust with its byproduct being peace. And so tonight, I want you to know that God is trustworthy. And whatever he's proclaimed over your life, he has promised to bring fruition in your life. And so that's what you're gonna be talking about in your discussion groups today. Let me pray for you guys and then I'll dismiss you guys for like 20 or so minutes in those groups. Father, today we, we, we know we worship a God of hope. And we don't have hope in our world. We have hope in the one that brings hope to our world. And so, Father, I ask that as we think about our proximity to you, um, God, have we really given you our lives? If our lives were to be taken today, God, will we end up with you or will we end up forever away from you? I pray, Father, as we talk about hope, as we talk about grace, as we talk about uh, the message of uh, the good news of Scripture, that we can be reconciled and right with you, God, that you would place that convicting message on our heart, God, to be right with you and make a decision to follow you. Lord God, we love you, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast. For more information about our services, events, and ways to get involved, head on over to scgchurch.org. Thanks again for listening.